Good morning, friends. My name is Dave Furman, and I have the privilege of being one of the elders of our church, and I have the honor of preaching the Word this week. If you have a Bible with you like I do, please open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to continue our series in this book. Today, we're going to look at that chapter and also take a glance at Psalm 51, which Namratha just read for us. Last week, we looked at a, a, a real weighty passage of Scripture. It took place at a time when kings went off to war, but King David, the king of Israel, stayed home. He was milling around the castle. He went up on the roof and things went downhill fast. He takes another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. David spends all his energy working hard to cover up sin after sin after sin, but he's pretty bad at the cover up. Time and time again, he fails only to finally finish the job by having the man murdered in battle. He then takes the woman to be his own wife. But just when we think perhaps David is going to get away with it and that God was nowhere to be seen in the pages of that chapter, God seems to burst out of the silence, his name absent throughout chapter 11. But then all of a sudden at the very end, we get a little bit of commentary from God on how he feels about all this. And we see that the Lord was displeased with David. David might be ready to move on, but God is not ready to move on. David might be be ready to think he's gotten away with it, but God knows. And we have here a foretaste of what's going to happen in the coming days. And we wonder at this point, what was David feeling? What was David thinking now that he's brought Bathsheba into his house? Did he really think everything was okay? Was he convicted of all this horrific sin in some way? Now, we don't know how long it was between chapters, but there was a period of mourning we see he brings Bathsheba into his house as his wife. It was some period of time. It may have been months. What were these months like? Did he even feel just a twinge of regret, sadness? Now, what was going on in the king's heart? And the question that's asked of the text now is, what should David do? What should David do now that he sinned? And for that matter, what should any of us do after we've made a mockery of God with our sin? What do we do when we've royally messed up? What do we do when, like David, we've turned to sin instead of turning to God? Now, our passage is going to answer that question today, and we're going to see three points. For those of you who love alliteration and those of you that love classic three-point sermons, this sermon and this sermon outline is for you. I have three points, three R's. Number one, rebuke. Number two, repentance. And number three, restoration. We'll see the rebuke of the king, repentance of the king, and restoration of the king. So first, let's take a look at rebuke. There's a prophet named Nathan, and he comes and tells David about an incident. Now listen to the recounting of the story, verses 1 through 6. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He saw last week David twice sent for Bathsheba, first to sin with her and then to cover up his sin. He also sent for Uriah to cover up his sinful tracks and then sent him back to Joab carrying his death warrant. There's a theme of sending in these chapters, but who's doing the sending here? It's the Lord. It's no longer David. The Lord himself sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. And make no mistake, that first sentence is just dripping with grace toward David. We might think he's caught, and in a way he is, but this is grace. God will pursue David. We see in Romans chapter 1 that the greatest judgment of God isn't his rebuke. No, the greatest judgment of God is when he leaves you in your sin. It's when he leaves you alone. It's when he leaves you to go about your sinful business. That's the worst judgment. No, this is grace here. The Lord sends Nathan out of love and out of concern for his own glory. Was this just a made-up story? Was it a parable, as it's often been called? Or was it an actual case? And David thinks he has to pass judgment on it. Now, we don't know for sure. It looks like David may think it's real. In any event, the effect is real. It's a story of, of a rich man and a poor man. The poor man had only one little lamb and she would lie in his arms. Now, more irony here. Nathan uses the word shakab, which means to sleep or to lie down to describe that lamb in the man's arms. It's the same verb used to describe how David slept with Bathsheba. Also, the poor man's lamb was like a daughter to him. The word bat is a word for daughter. It could be an echo of Bathsheba's name. The poor man had only one lamb. The rich man had all kinds of animals. The rich man has a guest. It would have been natural for him to take one of those animals and to honor his guest by slaying the animal. But instead, verse four, even more irony, while he's unwilling to take from his huge flock, he took this man's little lamb, his little daughter, and he feeds his guests with it. He strips the poor man of all that he had. Again, the same word, used to describe how David took Bathsheba. Now, it's interesting that Nathan uses a story of abuse and power here. It's because at the very center of David's adultery and murder was actually David's horrific abuse of power. David doesn't seem to get any of this irony. He's outraged. He's outraged at the story. He calls for this man's head. He says, this man must die. Literally, he's a son of death. But the irony doesn't stop there. As Uriah carried his own death sentence to the commander Joab, now David unknowingly pronounces his own death sentence. Now, Nathan, being a discerning man, he sees this as a good time to let David in on a little secret. He speaks this prophetic word from the Lord to David in verses 7 and following. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. When Nathan now turns the parable on its head, David, David, you are the man. 
Nathan then describes from the Lord's point of view, all that David had done. I anointed you king. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you everything. Why have you despised my word? Why have you rejected my ways and disobeyed? Well, like, like the rich man in the, in the parable, David had more than he possibly could need. He had it all. And he went for more. Now, just to be clear, these verses here are not an endorsement of the multiple wives David had, but rather a recognition that he had no need for yet another man's wife. He had more than enough, more than he needed, more than he should have had. And he was still pursuing that one little bitty lamb. David was guilty of stealing, lying, adultery, and murder. And God saw it all. Nathan's confrontation was not ill-calculated. Now think about this just for a second. What must it have been like to rebuke the king of Israel? What would have been going through Nathan's mind? I wonder if he had the thought of pulling a Jonah. Remember when Jonah was called to go to the wicked Ninevites and preach repentance, where did he go? Well, he went in the complete opposite direction. He got on a ship, he took a nap, and he set sail for Tarshish. He wanted to have nothing to do with that evil people. What was Nathan thinking about this assignment? David had already abused his power. He had murdered Uriah. A rebuke is about the last thing you'd want to bring to the king. That's a prophetic assignment that that you'd want to pass right on to the next guy. I'll do anything else, Lord. I'll do anything for you. I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but don't make me rebuke the king. But Nathan goes. He's faithful to the task at hand, no matter the difficulty. It's a good reminder that we are always in the hands of God as we go about the mission he has for us. And Nathan's rebuke here is legendary. It's quite insightful, actually. There's a lot we can learn from this rebuke, a lot we can apply to our own relationships. There will be times when We'll need to rebuke our family, friends, or fellow church members. How do we do it in a way that honors God? Well, let's look more closely here at Nathan's rebuke. First, he rebuked David wisely. Nathan was wise in his confrontation. I wonder if he came in trembling. Maybe his, maybe his hands were, were, were actually shaking. He had doubts in his mind. But even in that fear, he had a plan. He told the story. He invited David into that story, a story that he hoped would pierce David to the heart. And he was right. I'm also assuming much prayer and planning went into it. James chapter 1, verse 5 reminds us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should go to God who gives generously to all who ask him. Now, Nathan was wise. He didn't approach the king aimlessly. Well, second, he re- rebuked gently. Nathan could have come in and immediately called David an adulterer. You're, you're a murderer, David. He could have come straight out of the gate with, with those accusations. He could have said to the king, repent. Look at what you've done. You're a horrible person. You deserve to die. But he didn't come with, in with a hammer, but with love. Now, sure, he was firm. He calls out David, but he does it with a kind of gentleness. And third, he rebuked patiently. Now, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but Nathan doesn't seem to have rushed to rebuke David. As I mentioned, we know some time has passed, and even after he gets there, he settles in for a story, really waiting for God to prepare David's heart to receive the rebuke. Nathan's wise, he's gentle, and he's patient. He prepared David to feel the weight of his sin by painting a picture of David's abuse. David had many wives. David had much wealth. He was the king. Uriah had only one wife. As the rich man took the lamb, David took Uriah's wife. At this point, David's anger is kindled. 
it's boiling over. First over, what he perceives as another man's sins. It's easy to spot the sin of another, isn't it? David wasn't callous to sin, just callous to his own sin. Author A.W. Pink writes, What a strange thing the heart of a believer is. What a medley dwells within it, often filled with righteous indignation against the sins of others, while blind to its own. And David was blind until this moment. And Nathan goes in for the kill. David, you're the man. David, this is you. That rich man is you. The one who deserves death is you. And what must David have felt in that moment? How is he going to react? Is he going to call for Nathan's life? Well, we know how he responds by God's grace. He responds in repentance. That's the second point today. We've seen the rebuke, and now we see the repentance of the king. Number two, repentance. What will be David's response to his sin? Well, we see that in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What's David's response? Well, he confesses his sin. It's short. You might read this in your Bibles and say, wait a minute, that's it? (laughs) That's all he says? It's even shorter in the Hebrew. Two words. That's it. Two words. Nothing more. But I want to point out just how wonderful this confession really is. It's short. It's simple. Yes. But that's what makes it so good. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, because many so-called confessions aren't really confessions. Instead, they play the blame game. I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry, but if you were nicer to me, then I wouldn't have sinned. I'm sorry, but if my circumstances were better, then I wouldn't have been put in a position to do this. I'm sorry, but I was just having a bad day. I was tired. I stayed up late. My boss was mean. My spouse was angry. My kids, my kids, they made me do it. They were driving me up the wall. They made me lose my temper. Well, we may smirk at some of those excuses because they're true, aren't they? And we're probably, we're probably used, we probably used one or more of them on a regular basis. We played the blame game. I'm sorry, but it's kind of a half-hearted confession. We're actually shifting the blame from bearing full responsibility to pointing the responsibility at another person or a circumstance as the cause, or at least as a contributor to our, our actions. Now, in David's confession, there's no justification. There's no blaming others. There's no excuses. There's no, there's no finger pointing. There's no rationalizing. There's nothing extra in there. It's a model confession in many ways. David even understands the nature of his sin. Sure, he sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah. He sins against the nation of Israel and others. But he understands that ultimately he has sinned against God. There's no rationalization, but there's also no argument. Now, this is key too. You may remember from Genesis chapter 4, Cain, his brother Abel. Cain murders Abel. And after God confronts him, sure, Cain is sad. He's weeping. He's begging God. But what's he so upset about? His sin against Abel? His sin against God? No, not at all. He's horrified at his punishment. He says it's too much to bear. He's arguing and crying out to God about the severity of the punishment. But here David keeps quiet. There would not be any arguing here. No, the reformer John Calvin writes that in David's disgrace, silence meant more than the language he uttered. David says, I have sinned against the Lord, period, full stop. That's it. At least here, when he does reflect later on his sin, 
It's even further a model of confession. Psalm 51, written in the aftermath of David's downfall, is beautiful. It's a confession with no excuses, no justification, no rationalization. Again, no finger pointing. It's long, but there's no blame game. It's a psalm acknowledging personal responsibility for sin and reflection on God's love. In verse 1, David is begging God for mercy according to his steadfast love. Verse 3, David acknowledges his sin. It's ever before him. It's there. He sees it. And what does he do? Well, he seeks forgiveness from God. The psalm shows David's understanding in verse 7 that only, this is key, that only the blood of a sacrifice could set him free. He knew there was nothing he could do on his own to be cleansed, that only God could take his crimson stain and make it white as snow. David was appealing to God alone to, to wash away his sin. And in verse 10 through 12, there in Psalm 51, he's asking God to create in him a clean heart, to give him a right spirit, to keep him in his presence, to restore to him joy. David, at this point, wants nothing else than to find his joy in God. Now, Psalm 51 makes no excuses, but it looks, but David looks to God for forgiveness of sin and restoration of relationship to God. Now, you might wonder at this point, how can we really tell the difference between, on the one hand, real repentance, and on the other hand, worldly sorrow? Well, at first glance, they might look alike. There might be tears. There might be sadness, even despair in both cases. But at the very heart, there's a huge difference. Real repentance makes no excuses, and it accepts full responsibility. And it regrets and is most horrified about sin against the God of the universe. It's an acknowledgement of sin that goes a step further in that it involves a changed life. There's a, there's a turning in repentance. We always talk about this. There's a turn. You turn away from sin and you turn to Christ and you live in the newness of Christ. Now, worldly sorrow grieves being caught more than sinning against God. A person with worldly sorrow is concerned more, just like Cain, with their changed circumstances and consequences than they are with those they hurt and certainly more than grieving God and his heart. Well, friend, as you watch, maybe you find yourself today in a place like David. Right here, right now, you have sin you haven't dealt with. I wonder if you're feeling just the weight of conviction over these past couple weeks over your own sin. Even as you watch now, you realize your life looks more like the David of chapter 11 than you have realized. What does repentance look like for you? Well, let me give you a few things to bear in mind as you repent. Number one, Confess before God. Always start here. Confess before God. Go to God. Acknowledge your sin before Him. Read Psalm 51. Use it as a basis of your prayers. Make no excuses. Don't rationalize your sin. Go to God and ask forgiveness for your sin. Well, two, confess before others. After confessing to God, it's also wise to confess to someone else. Maybe just a person or two in a small circle of people or church leaders you trust. James 5, later on in verse 16, says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's helpful to have a couple of friends who know how everything is going in your life. Now, what you don't want is to share with everyone or to tell just a little bit of your sin to a whole bunch of different people so that no one really knows the true story. What you end up doing is having a whole lot of people who know a little bit of truth, but not the whole truth. True confession and accountability with a couple people who know everything brings with it a certain humiliation, which can be helpful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, put it best when he said, 
Confession in the presence of a brother or sister is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Because this humiliation is so hard, we continually scheme to avoid it. Yet in the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, we experience our rescue and salvation. In the confession, we find freedom. It's hard, but accountability can be a God-given way to help us fight sin. And it can help us experience rescue as that brother or sister encourages us, prays for us, and reminds us of Christ's finished work on the cross. Well, number three, confess specifically. Be specific about what you've done. It's unhelpful to just say, well, the last few days I've been struggling with lust and to just leave it at that. Now, what does that actually mean when you say those words? Did you look? Did you linger where you weren't supposed to linger? What were you thinking about? Was this something you read? Was it an improper conversation? For how long did it last? Was it a habitual action? Was it a one-time thing? Now, this doesn't mean that you share specifics in a way that would lead someone else to visualize sin. That's not what I'm talking about here. But enough so that the other person knows what you're actually struggling with. We don't want to be vague. We want to move beyond vague generalizations. Number four, confess quickly. Confess quickly. Confess before you're caught. David didn't do this. It took someone confronting him, someone finding him out. Now, it's best to confess quickly. Don't let it linger. The more you wait, the greater chance you'll never say anything. You may begin to rationalize that it really, ah, this really wasn't a big deal. David might not have repented if the Lord hadn't sent Nathan. And in all this, fellow Christian, put yourself in a position where all this community can take place. Join the church as a member so you have the protection of the other members. I know I need this for me. Friends, I need you. I need you because my heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I need other members to help me. And church, just a brief word to you as a whole. As we saw with Nathan, let's be sure to confront in wisdom with gentleness and with patience. Let's work hard to pursue each other, even in ways that might feel a little bit awkward. Let's follow author Paul Tripp's advice and engage in intentionally intrusive relationships. Let's ask each other hard questions because we love each other. I loved my old uh, professor, Howard Hendricks. We called him Howie. He passed away years ago, but he was a hero to many. He used to always say that at the end of a discipleship or accountability meeting, end with one question. And he did this. He'd always pause and he'd ask one last question. Have you lied to me about anything today? Have you deceived me in any way during our time together? Now this question gives the person one last chance for the spirit to convict them to tell the truth if there's anything that they've been hiding. And if someone does confess sin to us, church, let's listen well. We don't need to give all the answers. Let's not be Job's friends. They did a great job for a whole week, the text says. They were quiet and they listened to Job. It's been said that Job's friends were amazing until until they opened their mouths. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let's be careful to heed the warning in Galatians 6 concerning our pride. Let's not be tempted toward a harshness and a passing of judgment. And as a community, let's look out for each other in a proactive way. You know, it's one thing to react to someone's sin, but let's be on the offensive members. Let's be an expert of our membership directory. 
You know, every time we add members, every time we have a member meeting or, or a Zoom call, every time we've added members, we'll email you a new directory. You can put that on your Kindle, on your phone, on your computer. I have it everywhere. I'm constantly looking at it. You know, the elders and staff, we use it to pray for you. We use it to keep up with you. Now, let's be doing that for each other. Learn names. Make phone calls. Leave voice notes and texts. And let's pray that the Lord would protect us, that, that he would protect our church from sin. Let's fight together. We can't do this alone. We need the whole church to come together. My friend Gary Kell is writing a book on purity. And he tells a story which I thought was helpful. It's a true story of a battle of animals which took place at Kruger National Park in South Africa. One day, as a herd of buffalo approached the shore, they came upon several lions there along the path. And, and when you see a lion, no matter who you are, you run. Lions rule the jungle. And, and, but as the first buffalo, small calves, was running away, a lion pounced on it, dragged it into the water, where at the same time, a crocodile sprung out and latched onto the calf. And you had this tug of war between the lion and the crocodile, and the calf was the rope. I mean, talk about a bad day. All this was caught on film. And as the camera zooms out, as the camera pans out, you can now see something incredible. The entire herd of buffalo began running toward their fallen friend. They surrounded the lions and they began to charge them one by one. The lions were stomped and shooed away from the group. Well, then all the attention turns back to that dear little calf. Now, the viewers are assuming it's dead, but before you can look away, this weak that's beaten, this torn up animal stands back up and scampers off with its family. Friends, this is the church. This is what we were meant to do. There's an enemy on the prowl. The devil is, is on the prowl seeking someone to devour. Friends, don't let it be you. Stay with the church. Now, sin isolates us from others, but the church, here's what the church is to do. We band together. Just like those buffalo, we band together to go after the hurting member, to help the fallen. We come together for the good of each individual person. This is what Galatians 6 means when it talks about bearing each other's burdens. It's not primarily talking about baking someone cookies when they're sick. It actually refers specifically to bearing the burdens of your sinful brother. Now, I heard a story this week about two men who worked together. Let's call them John and Marvin. John's faith was growing, uh, but he told Marvin that his daily drive home from work was a battle. And each day there was, there was a roundabout on the way home, a few kilometers from his house. A left turn led home, but a right one led him to an immoral relationship that he had in the past. It was a constant temptation. One day at work, John confessed that he craved to meet that person. Before Marvin left, he prayed with John and told him that Jesus would help him resist the temptation. It was pouring rain on John's drive home. And while approaching that roundabout, he noticed something there in the middle of the roundabout. His windshield wipers were, were brushing the, the rain away. And he looks through the wipers, through the rain, and he saw Marvin. His friend was there. His friend was there standing in the rain and was holding up a large piece of cardboard. Now, what was on the sign? Well, there was an arrow pointing to his home. And guess what John did that day? He followed that arrow and he went left and he went home and he has every day since. This is what the church does. We go out of our way to bear the burdens of others. A Redeemer Church, are you holding up signs for your fellow church members? Are you reminding one another of the grace of God? 
Are you going out of your way to help keep your brothers and sisters in Christ out of sin? And this is the church. Church members giving up their time, talent, and treasure for the good of others. We give our energy to help those in need. Oh, it's amazing how much in these chapters of 2 Samuel um, that we can learn from. So much to teach us. So far, we've seen rebuke, we've seen repentance. But I want to end with this third point, very important, restoration. That's the third point. All of this kind of culminates in this third point, number three, restoration. Did you notice that as soon as David confesses in verse 13, Nathan just jumps in and says to him, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But right then, right then David is forgiven. There is, there's restoration and miraculously, though he deserved death, he's given assurance that he will live. And the forgiveness is free. It's wonderful. We know from Psalm 51 that David, he marveled at his salvation. Go through that Psalm again later today. David is amazed by grace. He's in awe at his forgiveness. He's restored to God. Well, this passage today is filled with God's grace and mercy, isn't it? There will be consequences for sin, but at the heart of Nathan's response is grace. The law in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 tells us that David deserved death for his sin but instead he is restored to God. Also brief but powerful was Nathan's reply of forgiveness. Here we have the heart of the entire Bible, the entire Bible coming together right here. Man's sin is confessed and answered by God's forgiveness and grace. Well, how could God do this? Well, he could do it because one day, we read about it in the Gospels, one day, the Son of God would come as a baby, and this child would be born to die. And it was the blood of this child, Jesus, as he grew up and fell death, fell to death on the cross, where that he took the payment of all believers. David deserved death, but another would come, one who deserved to live but would die in his place. But here's the amazing thing, friends. In spite of David's sin, this son would, would come. The son would come through his lineage. The Lord preserves both David's life and his dynasty. The promises of the Davidic covenant were not canceled by David's disobedience. This is sheer grace, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It will be through this son, the son of David and Bathsheba, it's, it's this baby, Solomon, that the line to Jesus goes through. This woman taken in by the king in an act of abuse of power is not forgotten. She's not discarded. It's through her relatives that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would be born. Well, friends, this is astounding. I mean, the name Solomon means peace and wholeness. Well, the baby would also be called Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. The point is that David is restored to the Lord. Friends, if like David, you've messed up royally in your life, there is hope in God. Jesus Christ, David's greater son, suffered death to bear the sins of David, along with all other sinners who look to him in faith. Look to Jesus and enjoy a restored relationship with God. David does that. Maybe your life is a mess right now. You've sinned and you wonder if God can forgive you. I hope you stop wondering today. 
I hope you start seeing that because Jesus died on the cross, you too can be restored to God like David. There's nothing you have to go and do but to repent of your sins in your heart and to trust God. You can do that today from wherever you're watching and he will save you. This is amazing news. I hope your heart is filled with these words of comfort. At the same time though, there's a sobering reality in our passage. While God forgives sin, there is still the effect of sin in the world. Repentance and restoration doesn't mean there won't be consequences to our sin. Let's go back a few verses and look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. I don't have to explain all these verses to tell you this is going to be bad. Evil will come out of his own house, wives taken away, and all this in public, it's horrible. The discipline of David will not be hidden. And then in verse 14, we see that even after forgiveness is extended to David, he's told, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This had to be a moment of anguish for David. You will live, but that helpless child is going to die. Your sin has consequences. Now, it's always hard to see your child suffer. This is painful. And now a death sentence is handed to this child. Why does God do this? I don't know exactly. It doesn't seem fair. Sometimes like this in the scriptures that we just have to say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It seems unfair, unjust even. Why the baby's life for David's sin? It's a bit hard to take it. We don't like it, but we know that God is perfectly just and that we can trust him and that he will never act outside of his character. I suppose when we cry foul, we're not understanding the perfect plan of God in our finite minds. We also may be undervaluing the seriousness of sin because no one in David's family deserved to live. All were sinners. All have transgressed the law of God. It was actually a sign of mercy to David that his whole family wasn't wiped out. There may have also been other reasons for this death that may have been instructive for Israel. And perhaps this child born out of wedlock would have laid claim to the throne at some point. We don't know. But I think the point is clear. There was restoration for David, but there are consequences. The sword will not depart from your house. We'll read later that David's wives are violated. In total, four of his sons are killed. Three would die violent deaths. They would fight and even, even kill each other, even try to kill David, their dad. But what's important to see here about this restoration is that David appears to be a broken man. His relationship with God is restored. And in verses 15 through 23, David is a man on his knees. He's a man on the ground. He's a man weeping. The baby became sick. And so David sought God on behalf of the child. Verse 16, he fasted all day. He lay all night on the ground praying. He didn't eat anything. Here's David just, just seeking God's face. But in verse 18, we see that on the seventh day, the child dies. David's servants are, are worried. They, they, they're worried when they bring the news to David. They wonder what he'll do. 
Will he go crazy? Will he be angry? Well, instead he changes his clothes, he goes off to worship, and he comes home in verse 20 and he's, he's ready to eat dinner. The servants are a bit perplexed. What, what's David doing? Well, once the baby dies, he'll mourn properly, but he's going to move on. He's, he's, he's praying because he hopes that the Lord will show mercy and save the baby. Well, the restoration to God means he has a relationship with God. He's begging God. Again, he's on his face. He's pleading with the Lord. But once the baby dies, he realizes that the baby is now safe in the hands of God. Now, the loss of a baby is horrifying. Some of you have lost children, and I can hardly imagine the pain. David will lose some grown children. Here, he loses a baby. You may have faced a miscarriage, and you know this pain all too well. And we may not have clear verses in Scripture about what happens when babies die, but we have some hopeful passages like this one. David says in verse 23, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David seems to think that his son will be waiting in heaven for a future time when they will be together again. This is hopeful for those of us who've lost babies, though it's far from definitive. No more than that, we place our hope not in a verse, but in our God. If you've lost a child, you can be certain that God is faithful and just to do what is best according to his character and for his own glory. Well, we can trust him. David seems to trust God here. David seems to take a turn for the better here at the end of the chapter. He's walking with God, talking with God, trusting in God. It looked like God was absent in chapter 11, nowhere to be found until the end. David was looking everywhere else other than God. But here, by the end of chapter 12, David is looking to the true king. And how does our passage end? Well, it ends in a mundane way, actually. It's anticlimactic in some ways. It's another battle scene verses 26 through 31, but it's significant because David is doing the next right thing. David finishes off the battle with the Ammonites. David led the whole army up to Rabbah and they attacked, they captured it. This is the same language used of David's victories on, on at least four other occasions. David is doing what he normally does. David is doing what the king normally does, fighting the wars of the Lord. David is restored to God and he's doing the next right thing. He's doing what kings should be doing. Oh, friends, repentance is not just tears. It's obeying God. It's doing what's right. And so, so here we have it. The last three weeks, we've looked at some incredibly sobering passages. But just like that, the passage ends with a simple battle and victory. David again doing his best, doing what he should be doing, repentant and restored. Oh, Redeemer Church, let's do the same this week. Let's live in repentance. Let's live in restoration to our great God. Even when it feels like the days are mundane and it feels like the next thing is a simple thing, Redeemer Church, let's be faithful. Let's follow God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your words here. It ends in a mundane way with description of a battle. We've come through a lot these past few weeks and in these past few chapters. We've seen some gross and horrific abuse and sin. And yet we see radical repentance and restoration here. Lord, we thank you for chapter 12. We thank you that the story of David 
and the story of your people doesn't end in chapter 11. We thank you that you pursue your people, that you love your people, that you love David enough to send Nathan to him. We thank you for David's repentance. Oh Lord, we thank you for the restoration of him to you. We thank you that, that you keep your promises to David and we thank you that through David comes Jesus and we thank you that Jesus and his death on the cross washes away all of our sins. Oh Father, we pray that as a church, we would trust you and we would live in that knowledge and love of Christ, that we would enjoy restored relationships with you. And Father, we pray, we pray for those who are not restored to you today. We pray, Father, for those who are not reconciled to you. We pray for those watching now who need to repent, and we pray that we would repent. We pray, Lord, that we as a church would be restored to you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us turn to you in faith. Cleanse our sins and draw us near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.